Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Mary Ann Petrie. There is a non-denominational retreat weekend at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida. This will be a time of support and renewal for parents and grandparents on the journey of parental alienation, standing strong and resilient, paving the way for good health and a great future. This will take place April 22nd through the 24th at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida. I will have all the details in the podcast notes. I have a return guest. I'm proud to have Dean Tong back on the show. He was last on in April 6, 2021, season two, episode 32. And he is a trial expert, author, public speaker, and consultant in the field of false child abuse allegations. He is the author of three books, Elusive Innocence, Survival Guide for the Falsely Accused, Ashes to Ashes, Family to Dust, False Accusations of Child Abuse, Roadmap for Survivors, and Don't Blame Me Daddy, False Accusations of Child Sexual Abuse. Now, this month is Child Abuse Awareness Month, and I welcome you to the show, Dean Tong. How are you? Marianne, thank you. Nice to see you again. And uh, didn't know it's been a year, but uh, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to have you back on. Um, You're a wealth of information. And with everything that goes on with false allegations and with child abuse, you know, we have a lot to learn from you. Yeah, this is a busy month. Uh, CPS spends a lot of money in April, which is, as you said, not National Child Abuse Awareness and Prevention Month uh, in radio spots, in uh, public service announcements, billboard ads. Uh, to protect children. And of course, children do need uh, our ultimate uh, protection of them. Uh, CPS is the agency charged by the legislature to do that. Uh, But you have two sides of the coin. You have those kids who have been abused, and you have those kids who have not been abused. And oftentimes, uh, uh, you know, there are cases where CPS uh, being zealous advocates to protect those abused kids will be overzealous and will rush to judgment in a confirmatory bias fashion and perhaps uh, not consider alternative hypotheses of how else the kid may have uh, gotten injured uh, or why else the child is making an outcry of alleged sexual assault against her father or stepfather. Uh, and, and they rush with an initial belief system uh, to conclusion. So I, I'm very busy. <laughs> uh, I've been doing this now for almost 30 years professionally. So. Um, you know, for me, it's, it, it's just nonstop because these allegations don't take a holiday. CPS doesn't take a holiday. And for the most part, neither do I. Mm-hmm. You know, do you find there's more false allegations called out than there is actual child abuse? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I say that uh, with a caveat because most allegations are not false by the layman's uh, interpretation. So by false, we're talking about premeditation, bad faith. Um, uh, I'm going to get you ahead of time uh, by calling the toll-free hotline number. Um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a messy divorce, custody battle, visitation dispute. Um, and I'm just going to coach my kid to say, you know, you molested her. Um, and she's going to repeat what I tell her because, uh, you know, she's my kid. She loves me and she says and does everything I do. I'm just painting a little picture here. Mm-hmm. and so and so. Um, you know, uh, it, it becomes a situation that can uh, get out of control very quickly uh, because of our, our mindset that we think children don't lie, that they're not mistaken, 
when they allege sexual assault must be believed and protected at all costs. The reality is only about 5% of all allegations are false. About another 70% or so are unfounded or unsubstantiated. Those that did not meet a preponderance of evidence, 51% in court, where a judge thinks more so than not that the abuse happened. So only the judge can, can rule on credibility of witnesses, including children. Only the judge can rule on what's called the ultimate issue of fact at bar, which is rule 704 of whether abuse happened or not. That's, that's for the judge or the jury if it's a criminal case to decide. Uh, now, with, what this, with the stats I just gave you, that leaves about 25% that are actually confirmed substantiated cases. Uh, let me say uh, in law in all 50 states, uh, outside of Pennsylvania, uh, in CPS court uh, that I'm aware of, uh, the rule of law or the burden of proof is preponderance of evidence, prima facie evidence, 51%. It's a very slippery slope. It's a very gray area. All judges have the word uh, engraved into their, uh, into their head when they take the job on the bench, discretion, discretion. Mm -hmm. When you have to appeal a judge, your first uh, appellate remedy is for abuse of discretion by that trial judge. Uh, judges are allowed to use their discretion in family court, in CPS court, or what's called juvenile court. Um, and oftentimes we'll make a mistake on the side of caution. That side is on the side of the kid, not your side, the parent. This is not about the parent's best interest. This is about the child's best interest. This is not a family reunification system, CPS. This is a child protection system. So their job is, is charged to protect the kid first and only secondarily reunify that family. And I'm going back to the Clinton law, also known as ASFA, the Adoption Safe Families Act of 1997, 25 years ago, where the Clintons uh, passed this law, of course, President Bill Clinton with his wife, Hillary. And, and this law basically was supposed to uh, expedite um, uh, TPRs, termination of parental rights and adoptions, so kids would not languish in the system. Okay, so, uh, so, so it's not just a matter of lack of resources or money when a parent can't fight back against CPS, it's, you're on a clock. If you are on a clock, it's a lack of time and your hourglass may be running out. You've got 12 to 15 months to turn this around and get those kids reunified back in your home. Uh, you're only allowed two judicial review hearings, one every six months. So let's say you don't have the resources uh, <clears throat> to retain an expert and your lawyer is not going to litigate or fight against CPS, and the lawyer is giving you legal advice to sign off on a case plan. So the CPS lawyer says, okay, just sign your John Hancock here, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, and we, you know, we will reunify you with your kids' kinship care or relative placement with your family, even in another state, what's called an ICPC, Interstate Compact Placement for Custody. So if, 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 if the accused family has, has extended family uh, in another state that can take the kids, that's always an immediate option. Uh, but once you sign your John Hancock to that case plan, the law requires the accused to substantially comply with the provisions of that case plan. The judge is going to hold you, the accused, to substantial compliance. That's about 95%. You have to jump through the hoops 
that CPS is telling you to jump through. It might be parenting classes, might be a psychological evaluation, might be therapy for you and the kids. It might be you have to admit to impropriety and abuse you did not perpetrate. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't recommend you do that, okay? So you have to be very careful what you're signing and read before you sign what you sign and get legal advice from your attorney before you do so. You know, a lot of parents are not even letting them into the house. They may show the child through the door, and but just not let them in. I mean, I, I, I myself made the mistake of letting them in. <laughs> I couldn't get rid of them. But, um, you know, what is your advice? You well, know, they... I mean, that, that's a Las Vegas crapshoot, Marianne. I mean, if you do that, you're being, uh, you know, you're being confrontational, right, with CPS, right? Uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, you are utilizing, exercising the castle doctrine. A man's home is his castle. Uh, mm -hmm. Clearly, nobody, nobody comes in your house who you don't want to without a warrant. I get it. The problem is you're telling CPS, we don't, you know, as a parent, we're not going to give you access to our kid to do a minimal facts interview with that kid to see if that kid has any bruises or welts or marks on him or her. Uh, here's the problem with that. CPS can get right on the phone and call the police. Uh, now you have escalated the situation. Now the police show up, they will knock on your door. Uh, if you don't open the door, they can't enter. They have to have a warrant, fact, uh, but they can go get a warrant. Uh, if you do that, now you have perhaps um, you know, basically cause the police to be involved. Now you've accentuated the situation to a criminal case. So I don't know that that's great advice to mm -hmm. not allow CPS access to the child. I would say, and I tell all my clients this now, uh, for $35 on Amazon, go get a body cam. Go get a body cam that, that audio and, my, and, and video records in real time uh, in like a pen, a pen-shaped pen body cam stick it on the shirt uh, coat of your uh, shirt tail of your shirt uh, in your pocket, you know, and, and have that thing recorded, um, but very conspicuous. So, so CPS, the police don't know you're doing that mm -hmm. uh, because you do need, you do need transparency. You do have to have accountability, make no mistake. But if you, if you give CPS a hard time uh, immediately, uh, trust me, they can make your life uh, mm -hmm. miserable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of parents have been saying they're not letting their them in. To, they'll show them the kid, but that that's it. But then I don't know what happens to their case afterwards. But sometimes when you let them in, um, it still goes bad. Sure. I mean, no doubt. And you're not going to have your attorney in the house, right? There's just no right. time to summon your attorney uh, in, the, in the house to, to protect you on what questions you should be or should, should not be answering. That's why that body cam provides... Uh, uh, you know, transparency, but, um, you know, look, uh, uh, minimal facts interviews, it's called a minimal facts interview that the cops or, or CPS does with the child. That's before the kid goes to the child advocacy center for that forensic interview that's captured on DVD. That is going to be a very short interview. It's going to be no more than five or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And obviously, obviously with a five or 15 year old, there's a big difference there because the five year old is going to be more suggestible than the 15-year-old. The 15-year-old is pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, what's going on with that kid, right? The mm -hmm. five-year-old, because that kid can, 
uh, still talk about Santa Claus as a tooth fairy. You may not get uh, exact results, uh, you know, uh, in questions you're, you're, you know, you're looking for the answers from that child. So uh, it's a very dicey situation, but I think you're, you're pouring gasoline on the fire if you don't let CPS in because maybe they'll just examine the kid very quickly, uh, ask the kid a couple of questions, and then they're out of your life in a New York minute. Uh, versus, versus you just, you're just uh, really causing a major problem here by them getting the police involved. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, uh, even in, 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 I've heard parents say that they'll take their child to a um, children's hospital and um, they're saying that th- these hospitals are working in tandem with CPS. Well, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, as far as you, you don't have any proof that there's some type of covert conspiracy between a hospital or doctor uh, or nurse and CPS. They, they are mandated reporters, just like mm-hmm. therapists, teachers, police officers, uh, you know, uh, n- nurses and doctors are all mandated reporters. So they, have a, they, they, they are required by state and federal law to report any reasonable suspicion, reasonable suspicion mm-hmm. of child abuse or neglect. That is within their purview and discretion. What is reasonable suspicion? It could be an unexplained bruise uh, in an area of the body they wouldn't expect to find a bruise. Um, it could be, uh, you know, the child made an outcry uh, during the intake uh, interview with the doctor or nurse in the hospital. Uh, you know, enough of an outcry that that's going to warrant a phone call. Uh, but I, I don't think anybody could prove that some hospital, uh, you know, is working in cahoots with CPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have to, you'd have to prove that. So, uh, you know, and, and look, I got, I've had three calls in the last three days of, of families that have called me because their child, uh, you know, guys have been arrested. The father's been arrested. The mother's been charged with failure to protect because the baby had unexplained fractures. So, so the doctor and nurse, if they can't account for, uh, if they don't believe your story on how the child obtained the fractures, if it's a four month old or 14 month old, they think it's deliberate trauma. They think you committed child physical abuse. They think you pressed up against the kid or you shook the kid or you hugged the kid so hard because you're a big guy, you fractured the ribs of that kid. The key in all these cases, whether it's a sex abuse case, physical abuse case, whatever, alternative hypotheses, other explanations for how the child obtained the injury, for why the child is saying what she or he is saying. Alternative hypotheses. That's between the lawyer and the expert to put upon the judge and the jury, uh, to make the judge and the jury think there's another way this could have happened besides, you know, I perpetrated deliberate trauma against my kid. I don't abuse my child. So as the accused, unfortunately, you have no credibility. Once you're the accused, you have lost your credibility. All the credibility is with the system. You have to impeach the credibility of the system while you build your own credibility as the case goes forward. With these caseworkers, um, you know, what type of training should they really have? Well, <laughs> unfortunately, that's not for me to decide. If it was, my book, Elusive Innocence, Dr. Stephen Cece's book, that's spelled C-E-C-I, his book, Jeopardy in the Courtroom, um, those book would be mandatory reads, mandatory reads for every CPS worker in the entire country. Uh, whether you're trained through the NASW, the National Association of Social Workers Association, 
whether you're trained through the Child Welfare League Association, CWLA, uh, whether you go through your own state policy and training manual training to become certified as a child protective investigator. Uh, my book and Dr. Cece's book give the other side of the potential coin here, okay? Because abuse doesn't only happen, it, it just doesn't happen in cases, okay? Uh, but the immediate mindset is it did happen and you have to prove a negative and you have to prove uh, you know, that something did not happen. Well, welcome to my world. Welcome to my website uh, that's been up on the net for over 25 years. So uh, it, it's an unfortunate set of circumstances, but this is how America became uh, to believe in, in their, in their social, socialization uh, in this country. Uh, we, we kind of went into an overprotective mode of children uh, and with all due respect, women. Uh, you, know, you know, no man should, should abuse a woman, right? Uh, but we have, we have a Violence Against Women Act, uh, 18 U.S.C. 2265, uh, Title 18 U.S.C. 2265 is VAWA. That was authored by our current president, Joe Biden, in 1994 when he was a senator uh, under Bill Clinton. And he uh, and, and, and Bill Clinton passed the VAWA in 1994. Uh, we don't have a Violence Against Men's Act. Mm-hmm. We only have a Violence Against Women Act. And with that, a woman can give a statement of fear, threaten bodily harm, and get an ex parte order for protection in a New York minute. And I can assure you, the accused, the man, uh, will have a no contact order just based on a judge signing that statement of fear, threaten bodily harm. Maybe, maybe you were deployed in Iraq. Maybe you carried weapons, obviously, when you were deployed. Maybe you have rifles and guns at home. So maybe you're considered nefarious because you're ex-military. And because you're considered nefarious, because you are ex-military, uh, the judge is going to grant that protective order because he doesn't want to be on the six o'clock news or the front page of the local newspaper that he didn't protect a woman uh, and she gets hurt that, that later that evening. So it's all about the four-letter word risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I, what I try to do in my business uh, is try to help the attorney eradicate that risk, remove that risk. Uh, which is why I pretty much require all of my clients to go through what's called risk assessment testing. Mm-hmm. What does that entail? Uh, is that other than um, a lie detector test? No, no, no. Lie detectors are inadmissible in 48 of the 50 states. They're only admissible uh, over objection by the state in Ohio and New Mexico. Uh, however, uh, because police are trained at the academy, uh, in polygraph, it can be a useful tool in influencing sex crime detectives and prosecutors to uh, not formally charge or indict uh, accuse the accused of, of in, a, in a child sex case. Uh, if you uh, obtain an NDI, no deception indicated from a respected polygrapher or polygraph examiner. So, for example, I use I've been I, w- I was using for a while there uh, Dick Dick Ratcliffe. His website is federalpolygraph.com. Dick uh, became an expert in in child sex abuse polygraphs. He's out of the state of Georgia, federalpolygraph.com. Now, Dick's got to be close to 80 years old. That's assuming he's still doing what he's doing. But no, this is called called psychological risk assessment testing. Uh, This has nothing to do with a polygraph, because a polygraph measures your, your vital signs, your blood pressure, your pulse, your respirations. 
uh, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, you would, your lawyer would not advise you to take one uh, if you are stressed because any stress, um, any, any elevation of cortisol coming from the hypothalamus in the brain can cause a inconclusive or failed polygraph result just based on the fact that you are going through a lot of anxiety and stress. No, the psych testing is, is uh, paper pencil testing, uh, psychological uh, test uh, administration. So for example, MMPI2, CAPI, uh, CAPI, which is the, uh, that's, that's, our, that's our gold standard test if you've been accused of child physical abuse, uh, the CAPI. Um, you know, and so this, this risk assessment includes a mental status examination conducted by my psychologist colleague. It, uh, it includes a, uh, a clinical interview and includes about six or seven hours of psychological testing. Now, if you've been accused of, of, of a child sex abuse crime, um, or, or if you haven't been arrested, but you're on a criminal, interfer- uh, criminal investigation, but CPS has come after you because they believe they can, they can get at what's called a dependency against you in juvenile court, meaning that a judge will adjudicate the child dependent by statute, which means that you, the accused, have abused, neglected, or abandoned that kid, uh, then we will administer to you what's called the ABLE screen test as part of that child sex abuse profile. So the website for that is ablescreening.com, A-B-E-L screening.com. That is our gold standard child sex test. Now, in that test, we are looking for your sexual interest level in kids. Um, uh, So, for example, if you were accused of molesting a six-year-old girl, we're looking to make sure you have no sexual arousal or interest in prepubescent female children versus uh, your entire life of, of, of having intimate consensual relations with adult women. Okay, so, so we are going to be uh, showing you pictures of little kids versus adult women. Uh, not, nothing pornographic here, no, no naked pictures, nothing like that. Uh, but you, you are going, going, to, uh, you're going to assess your, uh, uh, you know, basically your interest level uh, in these pictures uh, via a laptop computer. So you will be controlling a mouse, which works on a Likert scale of one to seven. One, you're more averse or disgusted by the picture, or seven, you're more interested or aroused by the picture. Mm. Uh, now, this, there's also what's called the ABLE questionnaire for men, which is the written part of the ABLE screen test. So it's a two-part test. And there, we're, we're, we're assessing your cognitive distortions. So pedophiles or child molesters are very clandestine criminals, probably the uh, the sneakiest criminals of all out there, the smartest criminals of all out there, the actual, the actual pedophiles, they will try to justify their actual abuse. We will know that uh, within the cognitive distortion scale score of your able screen test, if you score higher than 25%, you're basically trying to con us. You're lying to us. Uh, you know, you're trying to beat the rap here. Uh, I've had guys score as high as 50, 60% in some, some cases. Uh, most of my clients, however, uh, who have not done anything wrong, uh, who aren't trying to uh, hoodwink me or con me or themselves or their, their wife or their kid that they've been accused of abusing or the family or the system, will score very low. They'll score 10 or 12 percent or even lower than that. OK, so if a kid says uh, who you've been accused of molesting, my daddy uh, touched my peepee. He also told me to keep this a secret because he's go- he was going to hurt my mommy. If I said anything, okay, 
The only way an attorney can impeach that so-called yucky secret is to go through the uh, have his client go through the ABLE screen test to get that number we're looking for on the cognitive distortion scale score. Now, with all due with all due respect to attorneys, no lawyer is going to know that what I just said. Okay, they're not trained in science. They are lawyers. They're attorneys. They can file petitions and motions and argue the case in a court of law, and that's pretty much all that they can do. They can't get up there and testify and give opinions like experts can. Um, I think we talked about this a year ago when you had me on. There are three types of witnesses in court, lay, fact, and experts. So a lay witness would be your long-lost aunt from Montana who hasn't seen you but for 15 years, but um, you know, you, you've talked to her on the phone because you told her you've been accused of abuse. And she says, well, I know you wouldn't do something like that, but she doesn't know anything about the alleged facts of the case. That's a lay witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fact witness would be you, the accused, but also a CPS worker. That would be a fact witness. Okay. The teacher at school uh, who, who made this report to CPS. That's a fact witness. Uh, now, uh, obviously, I'm an expert. I give, I give opinions uh, five or six opinions in social science, psychology, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors, they're all experts. Uh, experts are the only uh, witness who can give opinions in a court of law. Mm-hmm. All 50 states, uh, you're decided whether you're an expert or not due to the case law in that state. So, for example, you told me uh, before we came on the air here that you, uh, you became uh, or you testified as an expert in the case in Wisconsin. Wisconsin adheres to what's called the Daubert standard, uh, D-A-U-B-E-R-T. That is the higher standard uh, as, as for an expert to go through to tender as an expert. What do I mean by that? Daubert has strict criteria that an expert must meet in order for a judge, who's the gatekeeper of the science, to find that person to be an expert, uh, such as uh, the theory or science you're testifying to, let's say it's parental alienation, for example, has to be uh, published. It has to be peer reviewed. It has to have a known error rate. It has to be scientifically reliable. And it has to be accepted by the entire general psychological scientific community. Because you as the expert are testifying to a reasonable degree of psychological and scientific certainty. And in your professional opinion, this case that you just uh, reviewed and are giving testimony in is consistent with parental alienation, which we all know is mental, psychological, emotional child abuse. Uh, so, so obviously, uh, I have testified 40 times uh, in 15 different states across America as an expert witness um, in about five or six areas of psychology and social science. And um, uh, one of the areas I testify in is um, uh, I go up against psychotherapists or counselors, therapists. So let's say... Um, Let's say John, the father, was accused of uh, molesting Mary, the daughter, who was five years old, and mother obtained a uh, uh, injunction or restraining order against uh, dad in that process, and mother was told by CPS and the Child Advocacy Center who interviewed that five-year-old Mary, um, and they captured that interview on DVD, that's called the Child Forensic Interview, uh, to go into play therapy. So mother cherry-picked unilaterally a play therapist uh, in her jurisdiction, in her area, to bring the kid in to reinforce the child's memory that uh, your dad molested you, Mary. So the therapist will start uh, implementing uh, anatomical dolls and puppets and drawings, okay, Play-Doh and sand trays with that little kid. 
uh, and perhaps will attach uh, in her mindset, the therapist, the same fixed and rigid belief system that mother has, that perhaps the judge who signed off on that injunction against dad has, that this happened. So automatically, the accused is working bass backwards. You're automatically, there's already a foregone conclusion you did this before any judge has heard uh, or ruled on, adjudicated on the merits of the allegations. You're already presumed guilty. And the therapist can do that because she's a licensed therapist. Uh, In her clinical opinion, uh, the child is uh, acting clingy uh, to the mother. The child is, is withdrawn. She's not making good eye contact with the therapist. The child is complaining through the mother's report of enuresis, bedwetting, uh, nightmares and flashbacks, curling up in a fetal position, perhaps baby talk, uh, uh, thumb sucking, regressing, okay? Uh, this could be consistent with, with child sexual assault. It also be consistent with a hundred other things, okay? Mm-hmm. But, but the therapist is not doing what we call source monitoring. She's not trying to vet the allegations. She is not doing a fact-checking, okay? She's not making collateral contacts to any other professionals. She's not searching, exploring for alternative hypotheses. It's essential, essential that everybody in these cases, whether it's shaken baby syndrome, whether it's Munchausen by proxy, whether it's child sexual assault or abuse, search for alternative hypotheses, other explanations for why the kid is saying what she's saying, other reasons for why the kid is presenting to the ER with the injuries that the parents brought the kid to the ER for. So for example, uh, here's an ER uh, case uh, anecdote. Um, Little Johnny was crying. He's 18 months old and he presents to the ER with some fractured ribs and pooling of blood in his eyes and a uh, subdural hematoma. The pulling of blood in the eyes is called bilateral retinal hemorrhages. So the immediate mindset of a uh, ER physician is shaken baby syndrome, classic shaken baby syndrome. We don't have to have a trial. We don't have to give the accused due process. Uh, We could just arrest that uh, man. We can charge the the wife with failure to protect because she allowed it to happen. Um, You know, even if she was at work, she should have known she had left her kid with a man who, was, who, was, who might be abusive, uh, who didn't want the kid to be crying. Uh, he couldn't control the crying, so he shook the kid, causing the kid's injuries. But, but the system is not looking for alternative hypotheses. We didn't do any genetic testing for OI, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta. We didn't see if there's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. We didn't test for rickets, vitamin D deficiency. So it's very important that you're searching for other reasons uh, in these cases, essential. Otherwise, the accused can go down the river here very quickly in youth court, juvenile court, criminal court, uh, have the kids taken away, placed into foster care. You can lose everything in a New York minute, your freedom, your family, everything. And that's happened to, you know, so many people they get scared they sign a plea deal i always tell people don't sign for pleas at all um, yeah that's, that's in my book i mean i mean uh, look i'm not a i'm not a proponent of plea bargains but as we talked off the air uh, that's an ex parte uh that's an ex parte uh, thing between the attorney and the client that's attorney client privileged so uh, nobody knows about that plea bargain discussion 
because by law, and, and I'll give you the case law, Strickland v. Washington, that's uh, S-T-R-I-C-K-L-A-N-D-V Washington. So Strickland v. Washington requires that the criminal defense attorney, whether it's a public defender or a or, or $25,000 paid private lawyer, um, come back with any offer the state offers that lawyer to his, his or her client. That's required by law. You have to at least put that offer in front of the accused. Now, the accused can reject that offer or he can sign as John Hancock uh, to that offer. Understanding you may be a convicted felon, you may go to prison, you may have to suffer lifelong sex offender registration if it's a child sex case. Um, you know, and, and so uh, plea bargains will not be discussed with the expert. They won't be discussed with the extended family. That is attorney-client privilege between lawyer and client. Uh, and we, we, you know, we just talked about this case that, you know, that I was on where I was getting ready to testify and my client voluntarily terminated his parental rights. Uh, I had no knowledge of that. I was not made aware of that ahead of time, that that might even be a, a, an issue on the table. Um, you know, lawyers are not going to discuss that with you. I mean, here I am on the case for a year, a year, and the lawyer does not discuss that with me. You know, and, and so why does the lawyer do that? Well, maybe the lawyer doesn't know the alleged facts or facts of the case as good as the expert. Maybe the lawyer, maybe the lawyer feels like um, he, he or she's not going to ask the right questions on direct or redirect examination uh, of his expert, um, you know, and, and, and therefore the expert could, could be impeached for, for some reason uh, by the opposing counsel. And, and look, when, you, when you're up on these TPR cases, uh, these dependency cases against CPS, it's not just CPS counsel you're up against. You're up against a guardian ad litem, which is a lawyer representing the child, right? Okay, that lawyer is almost always on the side of the child, has to be, because that child, that's, that's the lawyer representing the child's best interest. That lawyer is the judge's lawyer in the field, that guardian ad litem. That is the judge's expert attorney in the field. So there is a direct relationship there between the judge and the guardian ad litem. And oftentimes the, ju the judge will rubber stamp the findings of the guardian ad litem because that lawyer has uh, meet, meets and greets with all the other collateral people in the case. That, that lawyer has to reach out to the pediatrician, the therapist, the teacher, uh, you know, communicate with opposing counsel, but obviously spend time with the kid, the, the alleged child victim. So, you, you know, as an expert, uh, you know, you're going to be up uh, as the opposing expert, you're going to be up against multiple attorneys, the lawyer for the opposing parent, the guy in Adelaide, the lawyer for the state, you know, it, it can become very overwhelming very quickly. And you've been doing this for 25 years. I don't know how you've done it this long. <laughs> uh, Not easily. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it's like, well, you know, what do you do for a, an outlet to get rid of your stress level when you come out of these <laughs> cases? You know, I, I, I was asked that same question uh, back in the 90s, um, like 22, 23 years ago, you know, late 90s. I was asked that question at a conference I was presenting at. Um, hey, man, what do you do to, to uh, uh, you know, relieve your stress and your anxiety? Uh, I say, well, take a deep breath you know, go, go have a beer and, and take a deep breath, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and maybe go, go park your car at the ocean for an hour and just look out at the waves, 
because mm-hmm. I've always always loved the water and grew up on the water in, in Boston, Massachusetts. But um, not a lot of time. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I devote a lot of my time uh, to to clients and attorneys on these cases. Um, uh, it, it's not just that the allegations don't stop and the number of cases don't stop. The law and the science doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is there's, there's going to be new appellate cases that come down every month in every state, uh, perhaps in every jurisdiction. There's, there's new peer-reviewed scientific journal articles that are published all the time. Uh, this, is, this is a very dynamic field. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the longtime associates of mine, Dr. Stephen Cece, uh, that's spelled C-E-C-I, his book, Jeopardy in the Courtroom, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, uh, Dr. Loftus is, is spelled L-O-F-T-U-S, uh, both of these experts, um, uh, the foremost in their fields, uh, perhaps in the world, Dr. C.C. Child Suggestibility and Human Development, Dr. Loftus uh, Memory, probably the leading memory expert in the world. Uh, she recently testified in the Gislaine Maxwell case, uh, association with Jeffrey Epstein uh, in New York. She has testified in some of this country's highest profile criminal cases uh, in American history. Um, you know, her, her book, uh, The Myth of Repressed Memory, Witness for the Defense, uh, her two probably most famous books. And you'll see all these books at Amazon. Um, you have to know uh, uh, in, in these kiddie cases or even the older kid cases with, with post-pubescent adolescent children, memory is not a perfect videotape. It decays and fades with the passage of time, Okay. So whether you're shot in Afghanistan, Iraq, or you've been raped, and, and, and I'm taking nothing from actual cases, uh, legitimate rape cases, obviously that is an incredible trauma. Uh, and, and, and my heart goes out to, you know, to the victims who have to go through that and, and get, get through that and over that. And certainly those who, who perpetrate that must be prosecuted full extent allowed by law. But understand that um, uh, you know, in, in, those, in those traumatic cases, you will only, you'll only recall bits and pieces of the event. You're not going to recall the entire trauma, okay? Uh, you don't have a photographic memory. So you're going you're gonna to recall bits and pieces of that trauma. Um, and, and within bits and pieces of that tra- trauma, you may only encode part of that memory, only part of that memory. So the, the law, uh, and I'm talking about a judge uh, or a jury, uh, has to find a child spontaneous reliable and trustworthy. Those are the three factors in order to, uh, in order to find an allegation uh, is credible and that that child is credible. Um, the expert for the defense can give an opposite opinion after review of the uh, alleged facts and facts. Uh, and of course, the child's DVD interview, that, that's, you know, that's the nuts and bolts of most of these cases is that, is that DVD forensic interview. Most of these cases are hearsay, so you lack medical forensic findings. Uh, you know, the, the expert can give the opposite opinion that the kid is not, uh, is neither spon- was neither spontaneous, reliable, nor trustworthy, but tainted, contaminated, and adulterated by coaching or indoctrination or, or recovered memory therapy. Maybe the therapy, the therapist was, was well-meaning, well-intentioned, but misguided. Uh, maybe the therapist uh, put words and thoughts or ideas into the mind of the kid. Maybe the child friends the interviewer did the same. Uh, maybe the therapist uh, used an inappropriate uh, play, play therapy methodology, and, and the therapist was not an RPT. 
the therapist is supposed to be an RPT, registered play therapist. Okay. So if you go to the website, a the number four pt.org, that's a the number four pt.org, you can put the therapist's name in the search box. That's the, that's the American Association for Play Therapy website. You can, you can put the therapist's name in the search box and learn if the therapist has the appropriate designation of RPT, registered play therapist, certified play therapist, to actually be conducting that play therapy. There are two types of CCPT, child-centered play therapy, directive and non-directive. Directive is when the therapist is actually uh, working with the kid, with the dolls, with the puppets, with the drawings, with the sand trays, with the Play-Doh. Non-directive is the kid is doing it uh, of his or her own free volition. Okay. So um, what I'm looking for when I when I go over these DVDs, Marianne, is um, you know I'm looking to see uh, did the interviewer even screen the kid for coaching, possible coaching. So that would be, for example, um, you know, Mary did did anybody tell you what to tell me today? Okay. Um, did your mommy tell you to tell me bad things about your daddy to me today? Okay. If the, if the dad's the one accused. Okay. So that would at least be, be, uh, you know, trying to do some source monitoring, looking for alternative hypotheses and looking to see if the kid was coached to say the things that the kid has said in the records in the CPS records, uh, and why the kid was referred for the forensic interview in the first place. Uh, I can tell you this, 99.9% uh, .9 of the time, if the kid does not make a disclosure or outcry during the forensic interview, there will be no criminal uh, prosecution. Okay, so uh, it's, a, it's a very important proceeding. and uh, It's supposed to happen within three days of the child's outcry to the mother or the teacher or whoever the kid told uh, to, to, to get that report to the government uh, for investigation purposes. The kid's supposed to go to the CAC the Child Advocacy Center within three days, 72 hours. Why? Because kids don't have good memories. Uh, kid, kids will, will lose their unconscious uh, implicit memory very quickly uh, and shift over to the conscious explicit memory where things can become tainted and contaminated. Okay. Um, and, and so, um, you know, the, the things like, you know, the secret, the so-called secret, uh, if the kid, uh, you know, that should be asked during the interview by the interviewer. Obviously, the coaching uh, issue should be covered by the interviewer uh, during during the child forensic interviewer. All those issues have to be covered. Mm -hmm. There's so much that goes into this. People don't realize, and in you also have to know the law yourself. You do. You really do in order to do a competent job on the stand. Uh, not only not only for the attorney for the client because you're, you're you know you're trying to help the attorney you're you're ba basically a tool an expert is nothing more than a tool to help the uh, to help the attorney clear the name of the accused but you have to help yourself so to protect yourself you have to know the law you know so I, I make it a point of whatever state I'm taking a case from that I know the law for that state mm -hmm. you know with this being um National Child Abuse Awareness Month, you know, um, so many kids have slipped through the cracks and have been murdered. And, um, you know, I don't know what you think of that. You know, these things CPS lets slide by. 
Well, I, you know, it's horrible. Obviously, we have we have two sides of the fence here, right? We have kids who have, who have been abused. We have kids who who die um, in a parent's care or custody, um, or 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 relatives' care or custody. And then we have the other side, the non-abused kids. Uh, the problem with the training and education levels of these child protective investigators and social workers within CPS is they don't get uh, any education or training, to my knowledge, uh, on that other side, that flip side. So they don't really know the ramifications, the harmful effects to the non-abused child who's being treated as a truly abused victim before the case is even heard by a judge or, or a jury. And, and let me tell you, with COVID, with COVID, my, my, the lag on, on court docket cases for me has been not weeks or months, but years, uh, years. I mean, we're talking cases have lagged out for, for a couple of years now. Uh, COVID has just backed back stuff up. So uh, imagine, imagine uh, you know, your life is hanging in the balance. You may be going to prison for something you didn't do. Uh, you have a jury trial, but COVID is, is within our, our, our midst here. And therefore, everybody's going to testify by Zoom. Well, is that the way you want your due process to be uh, exacted in court? Is everything over a computer screen? I mean, how could you possibly get the human effect of seeing the affect, the demeanor, the facial expressions of jurors, of, of a judge, of the court reporter, everybody in the courtroom, in the gallery, uh, if, if you're over a computer screen? It's not possible. So, so for criminal cases, it really has to be a, a personal, uh, personal appearances in a court of law. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, uh, you know. So, so my my only issue uh, is that the kids that have been hurt, the kids that have been killed, uh, the kids who've been raped, uh, we've gone into an overprotective mode. And when we went into into that overprotective, overzealous protective mode, we forgot about those non-abused kids. Those, those, those accused who didn't do anything wrong, and we just uh, left them out as chattel, um, you know, in the field somewhere. And if it happens, you know, we, we'd rather risk uh, protecting children than what happens to the non-abused children who are treated as if they have been abused, the wounded innocents. You know, who cares what happens to the wounded innocents? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think of, and I won't keep you too much longer, but um, when CPS files like emotional abuse, uh, they put some under, someone under an emotional abuse indication. What's your opinion on those? Well, I just, I just, had, I just finished up a case uh, in Hawaii that I think I referred to you before we came on here on the air, and, and I helped a father get, get custody of his daughter. Um, the... Uh, the father got a protective order against the mother for uh, Hawaii uh, under Hawaii statute called coercive control, coercive control, which was tantamount to uh, psychological uh, manipulation and abuse of the kid. And this kid was a victim of guilt shaming, body shaming, um, severe psychological abuse. Uh, if you Google, uh, I think it's 995.53 uh, in the DSM. That is child psychological abuse. So that is a that is a subtype of parental alienation. So along with you know estrangement and parent-child relational disorder, child affected by parental relationship distress, we have this child psychological abuse. Now CPS doesn't go into a whole bunch of stuff in their policy and training manual on emotional abuse 
because I don't know if they think it's that uh, that much of an issue. You know, uh, I think they're starting to pay more attention to it now because, you know, social media on, uh, online and even offline has uh, hit this issue of parental alienation on the top of the head, you know, uh, very succinctly that this is something we have to pay attention to because all families are now being affected by this issue called parental alienation, which my former associate uh, who, who passed away almost 20, 20 years ago, Dr. Richard Gardner, uh, authored back in the early 80s. And some people will say, well, you know, parental alienation is, is just junk science. You know, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, anybody can say that who has a bend and a mindset that it's hurt them personally in a case or, or they're just a zealous advocate to, uh, you know, to try to keep this out of a court of law. Uh, I would say to you that parental alienation is, uh, as we are speaking right now, recognized by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, it's recognized by the, by the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Okay, those are two of the uh, top organizations uh, in, in the country, professionally speaking, uh, with MDs, medical doctors, physicians. So, uh, you know, did, did, uh, you know, did the ICD-11 include parental, a- parental alienation? No, it did not. Did the DSM-5 include parental alienation? By that verbiage, no, it did not. Did the World Health Organization accept parental alienation, recognize parental No, it did not. Dr. William Bernay has been at the center of this. You know, uh, I'm at his website, pasg.info. That's a great site for anybody who needs uh, education or knowledge. Anybody who's anything on this issue of parental alienation has some type of recognition over there at at Dr. Bernay's website, www.pasg.info. That's the Parental Alienation Study Group. So I would say to you, for those of you who discount parental alienation or you say it's junk science, please first read the peer-reviewed articles authored by Dr. Jennifer Harmon uh, and Edward Kruk. They published a great article in uh, uh, Psychological Bulletin, okay, the end of, the end of uh, 2018, I believe it was. Um, and then, of course, uh, Joan Meyer came back with this counter uh, uh, you know, protestation against parental alienation. Well, she's a longtime advocate against it. I mean, all you got to do is, 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 all you have to do is do Google Dr. Joan Meyer, professor out of Washington, D.C., George Washington University, and she was the star on uh, the PBS special uh, Breaking the Silence Children's Stories. That aired almost 20 years ago. So she has a long history of being an anti-advocate of parental alienation. That's known history. Um, you know, but, but then to piggyback uh, the Meyer protestation, of course, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Bernay, uh, I, I actually I strike that, Dr. Lorandos, Desmothenus Lorandos, uh, Demos, his nickname, his website is uh, www.psychlaw.net, fantastic expert. He is, a, he is a JD PhD, so he's a lawyer and a psychologist, but he handles most of his cases as an attorney. PsychLaw.net, Dr. Lorenos out of Michigan. He's also licensed to practice law in about a half a dozen states. Uh, Dr. Lorenos came back with, with Dr. Harmon, Jennifer Harmon out of Colorado, and published a comeback, uh, uh, you know, answer to Dr. Meyer's protestations of the uh, science of parental alienation. And, and look, the, what, what's the one word that the 
the, the, you know, the, the non-supporters of parental alienation dislike. It's alienation. Why is that? Because to them, this is a willful uh, use of abuse. In other words, this is malicious. You know, when you say alienation, what are you saying? Well, uh, the, the parent wielded that child as a pawn weapon or tool, um, you know, to, uh, to, to, to accuse the, the, tar- the targeted parent. So, 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 you know, you're saying that my client is an alienator and she wielded that kid as a pawn, either se- sexual abuse allegations or, or just mere vilification or denigration of the, of the targeted parent. You're, you know, you're a jerk. I, I have all this on text message and emails and I have messages at OFW and Aclos and talking parents, all the, all the parenting, uh, you know, methodologies. And so, you know, they don't like that, you know, and, and, and so they don't like the word alienation. Okay, well, let's call it something else. I mean, I mean, really, it exists. It's a science. I mean, we, we have peer-reviewed empirical studies on this now. Um, it, it, it's, it's recognized by the organizations I just said, the AAP and ACAP. Uh, ACAP, by the way, is ACAP.org. Uh, that's the American Association for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So AACAP.org. Uh, fantastic articles over there, uh, fantastic brochures over there. I, I, I uh, encourage all of you folks to spend some time over there and download and print out some of the, some of the publications over there. Oh, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, it's, welcome. If, if anyone needs to reach you, um, how do you want to be contacted? Yeah, yeah. So just, just go through my website, uh, www.abuse-excuse.com. All my contact info is over there. Thank you again so much for your time, Dean Tong. And I'm sure we'll be on again. <laughs> Thanks for having me again, Mary. It was good, good to be back. Thank you. Have a good day. You're the same. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Salam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Dean Tong and other exciting guests for another exciting episode. Thank you.